took my grandma, Papa, hitting her 90s to finally run out of things to do. Before, she'd host big Saturday lunches where there were always six more dishes than there were guests. Prawns nestled into glass noodles, their necks primed for snapping and sucking. Thick slabs of meltingly tender pork belly, half submerged in a swamp of braised mustard greens, nests of hair like fat choy. And if you arrived there mid-prep, none of this would make any sense. But it all came together in the end. A stack of golden fried mantel that threatened to topple into a pool of condensed milk, soft scrambled eggs with tomatoes, octopus and lotus root herbal soup, a mound of sticky rice dotted with mushrooms and lapchurn, and next to the rice cooker of plain white rice, a bottle of Heinz ketchup. Welcome to My Family Recipe, presented by Food52 and Heritage Radio Network. I'm Arthi Menon, your host. I'm also the lead editor of the original essay series on Food52. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode and on the podcast so far as we explore some much-loved heirloom recipes and the delicious stories behind them. This is a very special episode in a whole season of special episodes. And that's because our guest today is not just an essayist, but also a dear friend and colleague. Cora Lee oversees Food52's podcast network and has played a big role in taking the stories that are part of the column and bringing them to the airwaves. Last year, we published a piece that she wrote for the My Family Recipe column that paints a vivid and frankly mouth-watering portrait of her grandmother Opopo's weekly family feasts. It's called What Grandma's Sponge Cake Taught Me About Being Asian in America. Coral also explores her hyphenated identity as an Asian American, as well as the complicated relationship that she has with her parents. Coral, we've spent so much time talking through the minutiae of the production of this podcast. It is such a treat to have you join me. Welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So your papa's sponge cake is inspired by what is a fairly steady presence at most Chinese bakeries. For listeners who haven't had the pleasure of tasting this incredible dessert. Can you describe the taste and smell and texture? I think what comes to mind most immediately is almost like the texture of cotton candy or like the act of eating cotton candy, of peeling it back layer by layer. Um, essentially, it's a pretty light cake. It's a sponge cake. And so it's it's pretty tall, um, leavened with egg whites, not typically like a chemical um, leavener. And so it's a very tall cake that you could almost feel like squish into one inch pieces with your hair, one inch um, stack with your hand. And because it's so light, it feels like you could eat like maybe 10 slices in one sitting. And that's especially what I love about it because it makes you kind of linger around um, the table, around family gatherings, just kind of picking at piece um, after piece. And I'm one of the lucky ones who's actually had the pleasure of tasting this. I remember you bringing it along to work. Now, now seems like many, many moons ago, but it was probably just over a year, a year and a half ago. And um, you had just tested the recipe uh, before you published the column. And I remember thinking, oh, I remember thinking I could eat 10 pieces. It, it was... It was so light and pillowy, and I remember it not being greasy at all, and it had this wonderful eggy aroma, um, and I could have definitely eaten it all day, and I'm frankly quite sad that we're not sharing a slice as we talk about it. But uh, moving on, uh, in the essay, you give us this 
ringside view of your popo's table each Saturday and the array of delicious dishes that she would prepare for you all. What was the atmosphere like during these feasts? Who was present? What sort of stories did you pick up as a kid at these gatherings? What was give us a sense of the atmosphere. My papa and her husband Gong Gong, um, they actually had four kids, and each of those kids, each of those kids, I guess my aunties and uncles, each had, you know, like two kids each. So it's a pretty decent sized gathering, um, and typically all these dishes that you know I laid out in the essay get laid out on our dining table, and it's so full that no one actually, I just realized, no one actually sits down to eat at the table or in a chair. The people are typically eating standing up or on the couch or on the ground. Um, and the, the dining table is just kind of like a buffet or like a place to come and get your food and fill up your plate. Would you sort of pick at it all afternoon or was it a, a set period of, of lunching? Yeah, yeah. It's definitely like a pick at it. Um, I think like the newbies would try to stuff as much as they could on one plate. And <laughs> you, you realize like it's all about going back for more and maybe just like starting off with um, like my papa's um, herbal soup just to like kind of warm the tummy and then moving into like the meats and, and the rices and then always ending with, of course, the cake. Yeah, because you always got to pace yourself so you leave room for the cake. <laughs> exactly. What were some of the stories that were shared, the conversations that were had as people sort of picked at this wonderful array of dishes and spent time together? I wish I could have, um, or I wish I had some like beautiful stories to share, but to be quite honest, and I think a couple or many Asian American um, listeners will relate, is like there there wasn't really much real talk happening, honestly. It's a lot of um, small talk, what have you been up to since the last time we've gotten here or we've gathered here together? And especially now, like with um, these meals happening less and less frequently, it's it's really like the food to me felt like, um, like this disarming entry point to being together. Um, it, it, even if we have nothing really substantial to talk about or to relate over, at least we're sharing this food and can share memories. Um, and so I think what's typically discussed is like old times, old memories, less, you know, what are you thinking about now? What are you doing right now? What are you kind of worried about right now? A recurring theme that has come up on the show is one of sort of generational divides. And among immigrant families, these gaps can be particularly pronounced where parents and children don't just have a generation separating them. They also have often have a country of origin or a country of birth. Can you tell us a little bit about the challenges of identity that came up for you when they first started sort of coming up and how they differed from those of your parents and your grandparents? Yeah, I think um, I first realized I was Asian or Asian American and not white when I actually moved to college. Um, in Ohio. I moved to Ohio for college. I actually grew up in a pretty white area, white neighborhood throughout my life, but um you know, things get thrown around like you're, you're like not even that Asian or like you're just like one of us. And as a kid, like you love to belong and not really stick out, or at least I did. And so I kind of took that as a compliment. Um, but when I moved to Ohio, uh, you know, I was mingling at parties as you do as a freshman. And I kept being asked like, oh, you know, what is your favorite sushi or like what's your favorite Korean dish? And tell me about like kimonos. And it was like, I mean, I, I guess I could, but I don't really know much more than you do. Um, but I realized like 
I, I really was like the one Asian person for a very large radius. Um, and, and it was, it was strange to be like confronted with, with my Asian-ness or like what seemingly was perceived as my Asian-ness there. Um, and then kind of keep that in like the back of your head. And, and then I was also, um, I took this one art history class where the adjunct professor went rogue. And instead of teaching um, Baroque Renaissance art, she kind of was like, you know, we're going to talk about cultural appropriation this semester. And that was the first I had heard of it. I, you know, kind of thought that colonialism and um, the Spanish colonists like just kind of lived and existed purely in like a history textbook in fifth grade and had not thought about it beyond that. Uh, but then I realized like, oh, shit, like this, this happens um, this continues to happen and the effects of it are, are truly lasting. And, you know, one example of this being um, I started to see it happening in food and maybe it wasn't just happening, but I started to notice it. Um, anyway, so I moved to New York um, halfway through college because I wanted to pursue art history a bit more seriously. And I think this was just when the DeKalb Market Hall opened in Brooklyn and there was a, a stand serving um, Chinese street pancakes for $17 or something ridiculous like that. And it was like, Okay, so so this thing that was originally seen as this source of otherness or weirdness um, is now a kind of being embraced by larger mainstream culture, but also being sold in a way that is so um, kind of different or decontextualized from its original intention, mm-hmm. and and that like made me really mad, and and you know maybe it should have been vindicating or. I guess, hmm, affirming to, to see um, that, you know, Chinese food or Chinese cuisine or Chinese culture was being cool or becoming cool. But again, like, you know, the people selling it to me at the stand were white and like I, I kind of dug a little deeper and the people behind the company were white. And so it just felt like the, you know, I, I, I wasn't entirely clear like who exactly was benefiting from this and if this was like truly generating awareness of like Chinese and Chinese American culture or if it was again just like uh, a simplification of it. Yeah, so far from affirming really. Uh, growing up, did you feel comfortable having conversations around some of these questions you had about identity with with? your parents and and how did those how did those go if you did yeah I just realized that's where we were going with this original question um no so not at all I I think like um again as many immigrant or children of immigrants can relate to I think is like our problems seem so small um in, in comparison to what they have our parents have had to go through you know like the stories that I heard from my parents and the her, their parents is like, we freaking swam across an ocean and, you know, waded through dead bodies and, and did this just to give you all a better life. And when we came to, or when they came to America, they were like, you know, often afraid for their lives. And in school, they were like attacked and, and made fun of. And for me to worry or to complain that I don't feel like I belong um, or that, people make fun of how like my lunch smells. It feels just so, so insignificant. Um, and so it, it was very difficult and actually quite honestly has never really come up in terms of, um, yeah, speaking with it with my parents. I know you write about, you know, when you talk about this in the essay, you mention how a lot of their sort of problems were that they were physically threatened when they were in school or when they, you know, were othered in in whatever context that they were in at the time. Um, and so 
you know, trying to sort of bridge that gap of your sort of questions around identity and and, and them ta- and you know that taking a very different having a very different feel and look to it from from your mum's sort of being physically threatened and chased. Um, I imagine must have been very sort of difficult to bridge that mm-hmm. gap. Yeah, and I think like it's just a gap we'll never bridge, quite honestly. Which is, um, yeah, I, I think just like adds a little more to our, our disconnect and just inability to, yeah, talk honestly. Let's talk a little bit about Popo again. Um, so her table comes across, at least definitely to me as as a reader, as 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 a kind of oasis, a, a reprieve, somewhere you could go and and be yourself, uh, a place where being Cantonese was celebrated and relished and and where everyone's sort of needs were included and catered to. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? I think like it's, it's very difficult um, for Asian American and Asian families in general to, I think, be verbal with how much um, we love each other, how much we care for each other, how much we look out for each other. And so love comes out in other ways. And I think for our family, it's through food. And especially for my grandma, it's to spoil us with food and especially like exactly what we want and how we want it. At Popo's uh, around the table, you could sort of drop your guard and be yourself. And it was a place where, you know, being Cantonese was celebrated as opposed to sort of resulting in, in conflicting sort of these questions around identity and feeling othered. Yeah, that's right. And I think um, in our world, you know, beyond Papa's table, like whether at school or at work, we're, we're not seen as like American enough and we're not seen really as like Chinese enough. And then here at home um, or even like in whenever we visited um, Hong Kong, like I would never feel like I was truly Cantonese or Chinese or any in any way, but in this weird third space um, where we're, you know, we, we can kind of speak this unique in-between language um, with each other. It, it does feel like we're able to, yeah, let our guard down the most. As your grandmother got older, I imagine making this feast every week became too much and family gatherings and family feasts had to grow and evolve and change. What do family gatherings look like now? How have they evolved since that time? I think a few years ago, um, I don't think it was my grandma. She would never admit to doing this or never be the one to instigate it. But someone suggested that we started going out for meals or that we, you know, get takeout and bring it home. And that's kind of what it looks like more so now. It's less, let's, you know, make a huge potluck, but let's um, just order out or order in. And also it's it's really hard to get everyone um, there on the same day um, together, especially when I was away in New York, um, I had to miss a lot of these family gatherings. And um, now that, you know, my cousins have like their own families, it's just, it's difficult. We're all busy now and it's, it's hard to prioritize being together in one place. We just talked about this a little bit ago, but in the essay you write, and I quote, my family, like many other immigrant families, has a hard time with love, showing it, giving it, accepting it, saying it. But what we lack in our ability to express love, we make up for with really, really good food. Food is clearly a passion of yours, Coral. And, you know, you've cooked professionally, you've written about it, you've hosted and created a number of podcasts around it. When did you realize that the culinary world was the place for you? Ooh, uh, so 
It was actually, um, I used to watch a lot of Food Network in high school, um, mainly because the food on Food Network was so different than any food I had ever grown up with or was, was eating at home. Um, my my parents don't love to cook, but they're, you know, great at the utilitarian um, type of cooking. So it was just a lot of like Cantonese homestyle cooking. And so, you know, something like Bisquick or like chicken pot pie was so foreign to me. I was so when I saw, I think it was like Paula Dean or something making it on Food Network. I thought it was like the most exotic, quote unquote, exotic looking thing ever. And I wanted to make it at home. Um, I made it. It was, of course, as you might guess, disgusting. Um, but, but that kind of kindled like a new love or interest in American cuisine and culture. Um, so I started cooking a lot at home. Um, and then, yeah, I moved to New York and I, I had a amazing um, dessert at this one dessert bar. And I reached out to the chef and I asked to stage and that kind of started my, um, my, my restaurant journey, I guess. This is a, a- broad kind of assumption, but didn't, did Popo's table in some way plant a seed in you? Um, you know, seeing as you did that food was really the ultimate sort of unifier. Yeah. I think like, um, seeing how Popo took care of everybody, um, you know, definitely, I guess like set my values up in terms of like what I was looking for in a job. And, you know, maybe I wasn't cut out to cook on the line for 12 hours a day for, you know, 80 hours a week. But I think that interest in pleasing people and just making sure people have a good time or are, you know, actually, I forgot to mention, like she rarely ate herself um, at these functions. You know, she would just be catering to everyone. And then at the end, she would have like, you know, a, a bit a bite of a sweet potato or something like ridiculous like she wouldn't even eat the food she prepared but she was so consumed with making sure everyone else was having a good time and um, felt cared and loved for and I think that has been a through line especially um, in my work in the hospitality industry is just making people um, feel comforted or maybe feel like they have like reprieve from their real life or something hard that's going on for just a little bit I mean I think like that connection or that through line in what I'm doing now is like Yes, I'm, I'm not cooking directly for people as much, but I think food or the idea of food has the capacity to um, distract or entertain or inspire us in other ways. And I just love um, being able to give that to people. And I know for a fact you've also used food to raise funds for causes you believe in and community initiatives that you care for. So there's definitely a, a through line there about using food as a sort of love language to show that you care. Coral, I'd love to ask if there's anything more that you'd like to add to the conversation. Yeah, I think it's difficult because like I, I don't really like have the answers or like I, I don't feel like I've like arrived at a place where I feel like more certain of my identity and um, my, I don't know, f- like feel like I'm a good place with my parents or my my family quite honestly so it's it's hard to like uh arrive at like a you know bow wrapped conclusion with everything yeah none of this is linear kind of like neatly packaged storytelling it's not meant to be i think that's the beauty of it to be honest we'll be right back after a short break to talk more with coral and hear a bit from her readers Hi, I'm Hannah Forden, Heritage Radio Network's program manager and a producer of this podcast. 
If you're loving my family recipe, I have a few other recommendations to offer from HRN. Everyone has a food story, and Let's Talk About Food is a podcast dedicated to sharing stories about pleasure, scarcity, overabundance, all the ways that food delights and disappoints. From our first mouthful of applesauce in front of our adoring family, to our first bite into a jalapeno pepper, and everything in between. For fans of storytelling, this is a podcast you're going to devour. For fans of chef interviews, Inside Julia's Kitchen will introduce you to the bright lights of today's food world. Enjoy rich conversations with Yotam Adelengi, Rodney Scott, Melissa King, and other leaders in the culinary world. HRN is an independent, member-supported, nonprofit podcast network. Listen to these podcasts wherever you're listening now, or visit heritageradionetwork.org to browse our library of 35 weekly shows and more than 15,000 archived episodes. Start exploring at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back to My Family Recipe. Coral Lee's essay about her grandmother's sponge cake has not only made many mouths water, but has also hit a chord for many. Especially during this pandemic, many of us turn to good food, good writing, and great podcasts to find community. There's a thread that connects each of the following listener comments. Let's take a listen. My name is Claudia Tang. I first read this piece last year during the pandemic when there was a lot of Asian hate rising and a lot of violence against Asians. My comment was... Thank you for sharing this story. It was very touching, and I found a real comfort in it. I'm Asian American, but very far from my family right now, and in an area that's not diverse. The rise in Asian-focused hate has me nervous, but what I find more exhausting is the casual, offhand sort of othering I hear from people who I thought were my friends and better informed. Your writing made me feel less alone. Thank you. My name is Carol Tang, and I live in San Francisco, where I grew up. I read Coral Lee's article early last year. Her article touched me in many ways. It's so relatable. My parents are long gone, and I cherish the few stories of their lives they shared with me and my siblings. But I'm also sad that there is so little I actually know about their lives as children, as young adults. I think what is common in immigrant stories is our parents tend not to complain about their hardships, rather tell it as a lesson to be remembered. Hi, my name is Gabriela Hoglard, and I read this piece last year at the beginning of the pandemic when I really couldn't see my parents for a while. The story made my eyes water. Those small acts of love that parents have are so powerful. It's hard not to speak the same language as your mom and dad as you get older, and food really helps make those bridges. My parents do it too. They always cook extra on Sundays and hand me Tupperware containers filled with food for the rest of the week. It's their way of saying I love you. Thank you to all our readers for sharing those. Coral, coming from an Asian family uh, and with Asian parents, I can I, I totally understand when people talk about how many Asian parents don't really say "I love you," but it can often take the form of "Did you eat? Um, can I cook you something?" or "Call me when you reach home. Be safe." So that that was a that was a particularly. Uh, poignant comment for me too. 
listen to, I imagine for you to listen to as well. Your writing has clearly brought up a lot of feelings for your readers, and I expect this conversation will do the same for our listeners. What do you feel after listening to these comments? <laughs> I'm tearing up a little bit too. I think it's um, yeah. I don't know. It, it's complicated. I think it's like um, part of me is thinking like, why does this have to be so complicated? Why can't we just say we like love you? Uh, like my um, for some context, my my partner is white and um, his parents are obviously white, and and they're just. So they can so easily express physical and verbal affection. Um, like the first time I met them, I, I got a hug, which like kind of rocked my world for I think the the month after. And I like don't really remember the last time um, I've like shared or said I love you or received it back with my parents or hugged or hugged back. Um, and that's yeah, it's tough. I, I think like with with Carol and um, Claudia and. And what Gabriella said, uh, there's some power in, in hearing the similarity of experience, but it's also like my, my heart breaks for kind of all of us. Um, and I wish it could be, I don't know, a little more cut and dry, I guess. How have you and your family maintained connection through the pandemic? I know um, you've obviously moved across the country, so I'm not sure how that has impacted how and how when and how often you are able to see family? Mm-hmm. So um, I moved across the country, actually, well, what felt like across the country um, for college and then to New York, which was even further away from California. And throughout it all, we kept to, um, in touch over text. I don't think we've ever spoken on the phone or done FaceTime, though I, I think I want to experiment with that next year just to see um, what it does for us. But it's been a lot of texting and you know, it's weird, right? Like we text so much and I still feel like I, we don't know each other very little. But um, again, it's like the the ways of checking in with each other, expressing love through like f- pictures of food or just like what each of us are up to, um, like the garden my mom has started. She keeps me very updated on that. Um, so yeah, it's primarily through text. And now that I'm back in California, we see each other maybe once every other month. Um, for for an in, in-person um, shared meal. Well, if there's something else that you'd like to share with our listeners, otherwise, I just want to say a big, huge thank you and a big, warm virtual hug to you, Coral. Thank you for joining us today. I know this is never easy. It's never easy to be so vulnerable, especially when talking about family and family connections and, and complicated histories. Yeah, of course. Thank you. I think the only thing, and this is um, actually something Trevor, my partner, reminded me of last week, is we went to a wedding and uh, my mom was there and we were just doing our small talk thing. Um, And then I turned and after she walked away, I turned to Trevor and I was like, could you believe she said that? And he was like, you just had like small talk. Like it was, there was nothing harmful in that. And I think like realizing um, that you don't have to bring past baggage to every conversation and that, you know, they're not trying to hurt you and you're not, you shouldn't really be trying to hurt them. And you're really ultimately just trying to like, I think like find connection or um, see each other in the moment. I'm just like trying to go into conversations like that. Um, 
is is kind of what I'm I'm working on right now. Thank you for sharing that. And once again, thanks for joining us on this episode. I miss you here in New York, but I'm very thankful to have shared this time with you across the microphone. Thank you for listening to My Family Recipe. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show. And don't forget to leave a rating and a review to let us know what you think of our wonderful guests and these delicious stories. Special thanks for this episode to Cora Lee and to the listeners who shared their comments so generously. My Family Recipe is produced by Dylan Hoyer and Hannah Forden. Our Julia Child Foundation Fellow is Kelly Spivey and our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Cora Lee is Food52 Podcast Network's producer. Our theme song is Vittoro by Aeronaut. This show is a collaboration between Food52 and Heritage Radio Network. There's much more to read and listen to. Find even more stories at food52.com and heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, my name is Coral, and I produce Food 52's podcast. Now, Food 52 believes the kitchen is the heart of the home and food is the center of a well-lived life. And if food audio is as much the center of your life as it is mine, here are a couple others from our network that I think you'd like. There's Kristen McGlory's 10-year strong Genius Recipes column turned interview show, The Genius Recipe Tapes. Each week you'll leave with a new recipe or technique that will completely change the way you cook. And Counter Jam, hosted by Peter J. Kim. With the help of musicians and food friends like singer-turned-sassier Khalees, podcaster-musician Rishikesh Hirwe, and rapper Ruby Ibarra, Peter seeks a deeper understanding of cultures and the identities we construct through the dishes and songs we put on repeat. Or The Sandwich Universe, a show all about, you guessed it, iconic sandwiches. Hosts and longtime BFFs Molly Boz and Declan Bond partake in philosophical debate. I mean, why even is it called grilled cheese when it's not grilled? Take listener questions and dream up delicious versions for you to try at home tonight. You can find Food 52's podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen.